You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week six. Today's teaching is on Exodus 9, 8 through eleven ten. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, ladies. Well, the last time I stood up here, I commented on how lovely it was to see, I think specifically your nostrils. But today, I've got to say that it is an even bigger delight just to see you. I don't care what part I see, your elbow, your back of the head, just to see you and to be together in person, what a blessing that is. Clearly, the last few weeks, we have seen that we have no control over the weather, and in fact, we can't even count on furnaces functioning properly. So it's great to be together, um, and I also want to extend a warm welcome to all the ladies who are joining us virtually. I hope that you are enjoying this study also and benefiting from it. So as Chris mentioned last week, I hope you all had a chance to listen to her um, great lesson that she uh, recorded for us last week. But as she mentioned, she and I have divided up these two weeks of homework and some of the themes that are consistent throughout the plagues, just so as to avoid discussing the same points. So therefore, since she did a great job of covering um, the hardening of the heart, I will not really hit on that. I'll talk about Pharaoh a little bit, but I really won't discuss hardening of the heart, even though that did continue to show up in your study for this week. And I'll also be referring back somewhat to the plagues of the previous week's homework, um, the first half, um, as we look at some of the Egyptian gods, as we look at various themes that appear throughout both of these two weeks of homework. Um, So as we discuss these plagues, or as Chris explained, the signs and wonders. And my approach this week will be more topical than kind of line by line working through the passage. But let me pray for us before we start. Father God, thank you for your word and for revealing yourself to us and for drawing us into relationship with you. Clear our minds now to focus on you, that we may know you more deeply and love you more deeply. Guide us into all truth through your spirit. We ask through this, through the precious name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So just as I said a few weeks ago with the burning bush, that God is always very intentional and purposeful in what he does, the plagues he chose were not just random, even though they may seem that way to us, frogs, gnats, flies, locusts, boils, hail. They were actually directly connected to the Egyptian gods, of which there were many, approximately 80 to 90. In fact, it was one of the largest and most complex pantheons of gods of any of the ancient civilizations. And indeed, Pharaoh and the Egyptians would have understood that these plagues were directly attacking their various gods. In fact, the first plague, turning the Nile River into blood, hit hard as the Nile River itself was one of their gods. I won't take the time, obviously, to discuss all 80 to 90 gods. And in fact, I want to focus much more on our one amazing sovereign God, Yahweh, Lord, than the many Egyptian little G gods. 
But I do want to mention a few so that you understand God's intentional purpose in all that he does. And I apologize, I may not pronounce some of these names correctly, um, but I mentioned that the Nile itself was a god. I saw two different names for this, Happy, H-A-P-I, or Sothis, S-O-T-H-I-S. They had a god, Thermothis, that was represented by a serpent and was the goddess of fertility and harvest. H-E-H, or Hecate, H-E-K-E-T, was a god represented by a frog and was the goddess of fertility. Set, S-E-T, or Seth, was a god of storms and pestilence. God sent hail and boils. And Kek, K-E-K, or Cobbet, K-A-U-B-E-T, were male-female aspects of darkness. And in fact, their names meant bringer in of the darkness. As I researched these Egyptian gods and I read through this long list, it just struck me how Satan is not a creator. Satan cannot create. He is only a counterfeit, a copier of the real. Listen to what some of the Egyptian gods represented. Truth, justice, healing, wisdom, punishment of sins, death and resurrection, even holiness. Sound familiar? I felt extremely sad in my heart as I read this, thinking of how people back then in ancient Egypt and even today in 2021 America are so desperate for all that God and God alone can offer, truth, justice, healing, wisdom, and yet look for those things in all the wrong places and how there is a very real enemy who seeks to deceive and to destroy. Like Chris pointed out last week with the magicians and their occultic power, we cannot deny this existence. But the signs and wonders that we've studied clearly illustrate that God was greater and is greater than any gods the Egyptians worshipped. Each of the strikes represented an attack on one of their divinities and show that all objects of Egyptian idolatry were subject to the one true Lord. And the same is true for us today. There is no little G God, no idol, no sin that he cannot conquer. What an amazing example of God's great love towards us that he can and will conquer any idol and remove it from our lives. How grateful we should be that God has defeated the enemy and provides all that we long for. Again, what Chris said, yes, there is an enemy with power, but his power can never match the power of our God. Another way we see the sovereign Lord directly challenging the Egyptian gods is this choice of a staff that he told Moses to use. We've already discussed that the staff is a symbol of authority and power. I have a couple of PowerPoints showing images of two Egyptian gods. The first one is Osiris, whose name means powerful, mighty. He was one of the most worshipped and most important gods. He symbolized death and resurrection. What do you notice he's holding? The second image shows the god Re, R-E, or Ra, R-A, also one of the most significant and popular gods, the god of the sun and radiance. Again, what do you notice he's holding? A staff. 
An article I read explained that the shepherd's crook or staff was a symbol of kingship. It was a divine and royal scepter, and the Egyptians viewed it as a general symbol of authority. God, in his wisdom, knew that even the staff itself would be seen by Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a direct challenge to their gods and to the very rulership of Pharaoh. Exodus 7.20 says, In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff. In studying the plagues and filling in the chart in the homework, we saw how the signs and wonders escalate in intensity, bringing greater discomfort to the Egyptians. And Christy next week will cover the culmination of the horror and the final plague and God's protection for his people. We also see how incredibly thorough they are, clearly revealing the supremacy and power of God. Not just the Nile River turned to blood, but all the canals and ponds and pools. Frogs everywhere, even in the kneading bowls. All the dust became gnats in all the land. Houses and land filled with flies. All the livestock. Boils on man and beast. Hail in all the land. Locusts covering the face of the land. Darkness that could be felt. The Lord has absolute control over every aspect of our life and our world. The creatures, the weather, our bodies, the atmosphere. He is supreme over all and completely thorough in his reign and rule. And yet, just as his power is beyond measure, so too is his mercy. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. In the homework, you looked up the definition of merciful and reflected on how it was displayed. I found some other definitions also. Mercy is God acting patiently to those who deserve to be punished. Did you note how he warned the people to get their livestock in before he sent the hail? Mercy is something God extends in kindness and grace to those who do not deserve it. Mercy is a love that responds to human need in an unexpected or unmerited way. Ephesians 2.4 says God is rich in mercy. And indeed, his wrath and his mercy met at the cross. You filled in on the chart where God's people were separated, spared from the strikes. No swarms of flies where my people dwell. Not one of the livestock of Israel. No hail in the land of Goshen. All the people of Israel had light. His mercy poured out on his people. And so his mercy is poured out on us. At the time of our salvation, yes. But also every day since then. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 tells us, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why? Because he knows we need his mercies every day. And the thoroughness of his power is matched by the thoroughness of his mercy. It covers 
all of our sins. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I thought of this verse because I was working on this section last Thursday. And as I looked out the window and saw the pure white snow falling down, and I looked out at our yard and saw that it was completely covered by this beautiful, pure, white blanket of snow. And because God is so amazing and just loves to pour out his blessings, I was actually working again this past Monday morning, and I looked out my window, and there was the pure, white snow just falling down, his mercies every morning. Now, some of you may not think of snow as merciful, and I get that, but just at least let it be a reminder to you of what he does with our sins. Just as he was so thorough in his mercy that not a single locust remained, so he is so thorough in each of you that not a single blemish remains as we stand before his holy throne, completely clothed in the righteousness of his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.27 states, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, not a single locust was left. All praise and glory to him for his completely thorough power and mercy. A key theme that I'm sure you've noticed and hopefully rang loud and clear as you've read through all of the plagues is the idea of that they may know. Let me read through several verses in Exodus that you studied these t past two weeks. And I know it's repetitive, but I want it to just resonate with us. 7.5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 7.17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. 8.10, Moses states in response to Pharaoh begging for the frogs to be removed. Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 8.22, after he tells them he will set the land of Goshen apart so that no flies will be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 9.29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10.2, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is after telling Moses to tell in the hearing of his son and grandson how he has dealt harshly with the Egyptians. And actually a closer translation of that phrase is how he has made a mockery of the Egyptians. 11.9, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another. He is sending a loud, clear message to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and his own people, the Israelites. I am the God, capital G, monotheistic, Yahweh, the great I am. I am not just another one of your little G gods. He makes it clear there is none not one like me in all the earth. My guess is Pharaoh would not have been so strongly offended by just another God. I mean, there were 80 to 90 of them already. His offense and posture of extreme pride and stubbornness was in response to God's claim to be the only God that you may know there is no other. 
Up on the screen is a PowerPoint listing several other scriptures stating the same truth. Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like God. 2 Samuel 7, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. 1 Chronicles 17, 20, there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God beside you. Psalm 86, 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Isaiah 46, 9, for I am God and there is no others. I am God and there is none like me. Jeremiah 10, 6 through 7, there is none like you, O Lord. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Ladies, we know that all scripture is God-breathed. It is the true word. Do our thoughts, our attitudes, our hearts, our desires reflect this truth that there is none like him, no other God. Do we still cling to any little G gods and put them on the same level as Yahweh? We live in a society, a culture filled with little G gods, wealth, physical beauty, material possessions, health, smart, athletic, popular children, and even more internal little g-gods, self-care, inner peace, inner strength that comes from within. We cannot de deceive ourselves to think that as Christians, we are immune from falling into worshiping other gods. Could it be that pursuit of biblical knowledge has replaced pursuit of God himself as our first love? Don't get me wrong, studying scriptures is one of the best ways to spend our time and is essential in our sanctification. But we need to check our motive and make sure it is the means to an end and not the end in itself. It is the means to know God more that we may love him more as the one true God. Oh Lord, search our hearts and reveal to us any false ways that we may confess and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. So I mentioned Pharaoh's pride. I want to look for a moment at chapter 9 and read verses 13 through 17, which gives us a real glimpse into Pharaoh's heart issue and his refusal to acknowledge the truth of who God is. You actually filled verse 16 in in the homework for this week. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. 
And then in chapter 10, verse 3, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God clearly names it what it is. You are still exalting yourself. You refuse to humble yourself. Pride, arrogance, stubborn refusal to bow to another. We see Pharaoh's pride in that he refuses to do what the Lord commands. We see it when he tries to negotiate or bargain with God. Okay, I'll let the men go, but no women and children. Okay, well, I'll let the people go, but no livestock. He wants to set the parameters. He wants God to do his bidding. I hate to admit to you that that sometimes hits too close to home for me. Yes, God, I will obey you. But could it be in this way and at that time? And could it not include that one thing? In our human pride, which we all wage war against, we can fall into the trap of obeying some of God's commands while ignoring, revising, compromising others. When we truly know that there is no other God like him, he alone is Lord over all, we realize that he must require total obedience. And we also see Pharaoh's pride in his lack of repentance. He at times shows worldly regret, but no godly repentance. Pastor Tony talked about that a few weeks ago. True repentance involves a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. In chapter 8, Pharaoh asked Moses and Aaron to plead with the Lord to remove the frogs. When Moses asks him when he wants him to do that, he says, tomorrow. True repentance desires change now. Worldly regret wants one more day. I will change tomorrow. I will stop that habit tomorrow. I will forgive that person tomorrow. My daughter's pastor pointed out in a sermon that the problem with that thinking is that tomorrow never comes. It's always today. Godly repentance says, Lord, I need you now. Lord, forgive me now. Transform me now. In 927, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron and tells them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my people, I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. But again, we know what happens. He refuses to let them go. It was not true repentance. And again in 1016, Pharaoh says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Notice he did not ask that God remove his sin, only the consequence of his sin, this death. Once more, not true repentance. Dear friends, do we grieve over our sin, or do we just regret the consequence of our sin? True godly repentance does lead to a change of heart, a change of direction, and as Pastor Tony pointed out, a sincere, deep mourning over that sin, which results in a spirit of humility and meekness, not one of pride and arrogance. It is from this humble, repentant place 
that with the Spirit's help, we will begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be filled. And do we also grieve over the sin and the hard-heartedness of those around us? The homework asked you about the verse 11:8 when it describes Moses going out from Pharaoh in hot anger and what you thought that meant. Throughout this study, we have looked at the many ways that Moses is a type of Christ. Let me read to you Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Ephesians 4.18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. That should grieve us. That should drive us to show mercy, compel us to tell of the signs and wonders that they may know. Another significant theme throughout the plagues is the Lord's command to let my people go that they may serve me, saved from, saved to. Again, let me read the verses, even though it's repetitive so that it resonates with us. 716, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. 81, 820, 91, 913, 10-3, let my people go that they may serve me. There is purpose in our freedom. We are not set free by the Lord for freedom itself. We are set free in order that we may worship the one true God, that we may serve the one true Lord who is ruler of all. My husband, Ron, loves to use this analogy. A train is only free to fulfill its designed purpose when it stays on the tracks. Ladies, we are most free when we are living in right relationship with God, when we are walking in obedience according to his plans and not by our desired parameters. It is on the tracks that he has set down for us that we truly fulfill our designed purpose to serve and worship him, that others may know that he is the Lord. Yes, God sent his one and only son, our Lord and Savior, Christ the Messiah, in order that we would be set free, free from sin, free from death. But it doesn't end there. His death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension was not just to give us a ticket out of eternal damnation. It is to give us freedom so that we may love that we may worship, that we may serve God. And please note that in verse, chapter 7, verse 16, God clarifies and says, let my people go that they may serve me. Where? In the wilderness. He did not say that they may serve me once they enter the promised land. God desires that we serve him even in the wilderness, 
even when we are tired and hungry and seem to just be wandering. If you are thinking it is not easy to serve God in the wilderness, you're right, it's not easy, but it is possible. Dear friends, it is possible because God is completely thorough in his power and in his mercy. It is possible because we can conquer any little G God we may have, like comfort or peace that we're clinging to. It is possible because we know that he is the Lord and there is none like him. It is possible because he has poured out his grace and mercy on his people and has set us free and delivered us. It is possible because of Jesus Christ. We can serve him even in the wilderness. May our daily prayer be that we would use our freedom in Christ to serve him and declare to all those around us that he is Lord and there is none like him. Let me pray. Holy Lord God, there is none like you in all the earth. You and you alone have the power to save and to deliver your people. You pour out your mercies on us every morning, even though we do not deserve them. You set us free so that we may serve you and love you, and in that, fulfill the purpose that you designed for us, and live a life that tells the world around us that you are the one true God that they may know. May your mercy pour out of us to those around so that through the strength of your Holy Spirit, we would live a life that gives glory to you. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen.